Our reading this morning is Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with me, with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell 
of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, folks. It's great to see you here. Let's just begin in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this psalm. And we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us, speak into our lives from it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I find as I get older that I'm more and more unable to cope with an a la carte menu, the length of the menu. I just can't make choices. So for those of you who know that uh, the deal for for we who were speaking over the summer, uh, the month of August, that we were given a psalm to choose from, from all 150 psalms, you'll know that that would have thrown me into a complete tailspin as I try to work out which one to choose. I'm far more of a fixed menu kind of person. And as if that wasn't bad enough, there was a mix-up as the waiter took my order for Psalm 73 it came out as Psalm 84. So I'm afraid you've narrowly, narrowly missed the treat of having me standing here, having just had Psalm 84 read when I was about to preach on Psalm 73. What a treat that would have been for you. Why did I choose Psalm 73? With two reasons. Firstly, I love it because it's about a godly man wrestling with God. I'm not a good wrestler with God, I must say. I'm, I'm far too supine in my approach to the Lord. Don't take that in the wrong way. But I'm not good at really having things out with the Lord when I don't understand what's going on. And I'm not good at saying to him honestly what I am feeling. And I love this psalm for its frankness. And I love it for the journey that the psalmist takes us on as he describes his journey through this issue. But secondly, and more importantly, I've chosen this psalm because I think that it really speaks to a core problem that we all grapple with. It was grappled with in Old Testament times, and I think it's grappled with by us today. Briefly summarized, I would say it is, why do people who are far from God apparently flourish when we see people close to God struggling? And why be a Christian in that context? So why do people who are apparently far from God flourish when those who are close to him often seem to struggle, and why be a Christian in that context? Now, I'm afraid I'm not going to give you great verbal fireworks today. I haven't prepared a really sophisticated sermon because I felt that the passage can speak to ourselves. And although Rosemary has read it beautifully, I'm afraid that I'm going to speak it again or seek to speak it again into our lives and let the psalm speak to us. And I'll say relatively little 
as I seek to bring it to life. So we're just going to go through it verse by verse. I promise, folks, that this should only take around the regulatory 20 minutes, so don't be alarmed as we stumble slowly through the early verses. So for those of you who have a Bible with you, if you want to use the church Bibles, we are on page 586, and of course, it's Psalm 73. I love the way that the psalmist is straight in there, boom. If we look at the first three verses, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is his underlying faith context. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We're going to keep coming back to this theme through the psalm of feet slipping. And we're going to see whose feet really slip. And we'll, we'll revisit that as we go through. But here we are, we've got the psalmist who is setting up the psalm for us. And he's looking back on this episode in his life. And he's recognizing that he envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's what we're going to begin to explore now. Because in the next, let me see, the next eight or so verses, in great detail, he describes to us and revisits himself what he perceives that they have and who he perceives that they are. So I'm going to read through those eight verses again and then I'm going to make some quick comments on them. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imagination has no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Now, I want to just point out to us that, of course, there are two things going on in this section. On the one hand, there's a description of not necessarily bad things that these people have. We know, we know that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with money, with riches, with good fortune, and with power. He simply sets out how he perceives them to be. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy. They're not plagued. They're free from common burdens and cares. And people turn to them. They, they go for that apparent success. And the psalmist envies them for that. And I have to say, brothers and sisters, that I find myself often envying those who apparently have success in the world eyes. Those who we see on our TV screens, those who we read about in the paper, those who are on social media, whose lives are well curated, whose lives seem to have everything going for them. 
But it so often comes at a price, doesn't it? When one has all of those good things, when that becomes one's goal. We read that they turn so often to pride, to violence, to callousness, to malice, and to arrogance. Somehow there's a slippery slope, isn't there, when the world has so much to give. In the midst of preparing the sermon for this week, I've been reading the so-called summer edition of The Economist magazine, which has on its cover, I don't know why, a picture of an ice lolly, half-bitten. So you think, gosh, this is going to be a really uplifting read. Well, it turns out that it's not. It's the strongman edition of The Economist, and it talks about the strongmen in the world, the Putins of this world invading Ukraine, the MBSs of the world imposing uh, draconian measures in Saudi Arabia, the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, and on and on. And I would argue that in these verses we have a description of those strong men, those people who think that they rule. But I would also argue that this is of relevance in our day-to-day lives as we see bosses, potentially, who we believe have these characteristics. I have had that in my working life. As we see family members who have these characteristics, I have had that in my family life. And we think, where is God in this? As the psalmist has done, where is God in them apparently getting away from it. It's at this point in the psalm, mercifully, that the psalmist pulls himself up. Verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. He turns to himself at this point, and of course he's drawing a contrast between the apparent success and good fortune of the rich, of the arrogant, and the sufferings that he's facing. There's that juxtaposition in his mind, as I was saying at the beginning, between them and his perception of his own fortunes, that contrast. And now we come to the pivotal verses of the psalm, verses 15 and 17. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. So as I mentioned, we're with the psalmist on a journey here and we've seen his perception of the world. We've seen his perception of the contrast between the world and himself. And now finally, we see the psalmist coming before God with this issue. Firstly, he recognizes, and I think that this reference to betraying your children is a reference to 
speaking these concerns, which are not valid godly concerns, to those who are less strong in the faith than we are. And I would argue that we have a responsibility when we are stronger in the faith to not to use phrases like, well, huh, typical, or huh, or that's the way the world goes. We have a responsibility to those around us to set an example in what we say and what we share from our inner struggles. But then, far more importantly, he refers to entering the sanctuary. This is when he comes to God with his concerns. We don't know what he meant by that. We can imagine that it might have been coming into God's presence in the sanctuary, in the temple. But I would ask all of us, what is our sanctuary? How do we come before God? Is it, do we check in with him when we come to a church service? Is that when we set our lives and our perceptions the right way up again? Do we come to him through the Bible? How do we come into his sanctuary? For me, it has been two things of late. Firstly, at the St. Michael's at Six service, there is always an extended period, about 20 minutes, of praising Jesus. And I find that that reorientates me and orientates my week ahead to Jesus. Secondly, and this has been going on for many years, I've always had an armchair at home. I've had it for the last 31 years in a particular place in our house where I come and sit before the Lord. That is my sanctuary. That is where I try to address these questions with him. So as the psalmist comes before God, he has a realization about God's true reality. Verse 18, back to my point earlier about slippery ground and whose feet is it who are slipping? Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. I would argue that this is the reality for every human being when their lives are seen in worldly and human terms. We all face death on this earth. We all face risks of health issues. If we're a politician, we face the risk of being voted out, of being found out. We know that this world won't last forever. By the way, I promise I'm getting to the good news in a minute to contrast this. And as I say this, you, some of you, if you want to look back, will be thinking perhaps of Psalm 37 which begins, do not fret because those of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. 
And back to this point about the foot slipping. And if you remember the very first verse of the, I should say the second verse of the psalm refers to the psalmist's feet almost slipping. I'm not sure if any of you would have seen the obituary uh, in recent weeks of, and I won't name her, of a prominent New York socialite. She and her husband had New York at their feet. Uh, They were much lauded in New York. They were one of the wealthiest families there. They were known, uh, her husband in particular, for his worldly arrogance uh, for what he sought to do within his own power. She died a couple of weeks ago, aged 73, having slipped down the stairs in her house. That is the slippery slope on which we can be if we just take the world on the world's terms. And as the psalmist realizes all of this, He turns to God in confession, verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He recognizes himself for what he has been, that embittered spirit. And if you like, that is the low point of the psalm as we turn now to the heady heights which I want us to finish on and which I want to be the uplifting counter to the world. He realises, as he confesses how he has been thinking, what he really has in the Lord. And I would encourage us, whether we're here, whether we're listening online, to think about what we have in the Lord that the world cannot give Yet I am always with you, verse 23. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my strength, my refuge, and I will tell of your deeds. I want to bring three things out before we close about this response of faith. Firstly, God is always with us. He holds us by our right hand. He guides us. He's near us. He's sovereign. And what a contrast that is to the verses we read before of those who are far from God saying, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Their argument that he's not around at all. And secondly, that confidence that he will take us into glory. We will not perish. That is the context for our lives. 
an eternal context in the contrast to those slippery sands of the world. As the psalmist has said, they will be destroyed. They will be swept away by terror at night. I've used this illustration before, uh, but I can't resist using it again, of the Scottish crofter who was on his deathbed, and as he lay there dying, his daughter came to him and offered him the family Bible and said, would you like to read from this father? And he turned to her and he said, Nailassi, I thatched my roof before the storm came. <laughs> that is us, I believe. As the storm comes, as we face death, we know the word, we have the word in us, we have thatched our roofs before it comes. And finally, on the three parts uh, around this concluding bit of the psalm, the psalmist recognises that earth has nothing. Nothing he desires besides God. And God is his portion forever. And again, we might contrast with those in the first half of the psalm whose tongues sought to take possession of the earth whose purpose was amassing wealth. There is nothing, brothers and sisters, that the world can offer us in contrast to what we have in the Lord, with him with us in this life, and with his promise of eternity. I have preached before on this concept of the Lord being our portion. And I would encourage us all to think about what that mind might mean for us. I've been trying in my quiet times to be saying to God, you are my everything. I know that intellectually. Now be my everything. Let me live and let me know and let me feel that you are my everything. That you are my portion and my cup. And that with you, Lord, my lot is is secure, as the psalmist says in, uh, verse, in Psalm 16. I wanted to finish by reading uh, the end of Habakkuk, which I know that many of you love and has been much uh, referred to from this lectern over the years. But for me, it captures so wonderfully the contrast between the worries of the world and what we have in the Lord. If you want to turn to it, it's on page 942 in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. So beginning from verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. 
Before we pray, I just want to pull us into the New Testament and to just remind us what Paul, St. Paul, would have said about these things, these topics. He has told us in his letter to the Corinthians to focus not on the seen, but on the unseen. Because the seen doesn't last, but the unseen lasts forever and brings in an eternal glory. And secondly, he has told us through his letter to the Colossians to set our hearts and minds on things above rather than earthly things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you encourage us to be honest with you and to bring you our concerns, the things that we wrestle with. Teach us, we pray, to be honest with you in prayer. Help us, Lord, we pray, to listen to you and to hear you speaking to us. And Lord, we invite you to do a work in us now by your Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray, Lord, to see this world, your world, in an eternal context, in your context, in your reality. Lord, we pray that you will teach us to set our hearts and minds on things above and not on earthly things, to live for the unseen, not the seen. We just commit ourselves to you, Lord. Do your work in us, we pray. Change us, we pray. Radicalize us for you, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.